Unemployment is a problem in every country in the world. There's a map of the world and different gradation of unemployment. Unemployment, too many workers, not enough work. Now, as we continue our series in the life of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, we discover, as so often is the case, in the upside-down world of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus came to inaugurate, the reverse is true. There's plenty of work, but not enough workers. Here are the words of Jesus on the subject, reflecting the background society in which he was speaking. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. So what did he mean? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Our topic is a shortage of workers. And the reading, if you've got these Bibles here, help to have one in front of you. Matthew 9, 35, we're going to read through to chapter 10, verse 5, and it's page 974. And Joe is going to read for us. Thank you, Joe. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. Thank you, Joe. Well, if you've been with us in our series, as Jesus has embarked on his mission in Israel, everywhere he's gone, the crowds have followed him. And the crowds are growing, attracted by his amazing teaching and witnessing his marvelous miracles. Jesus sees the crowds as a vast harvest field, ripe and ready for reaping, that is, for entering his kingdom. But there is a problem. The problem is the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In the work of God's kingdom, then and now, in every church, and in my experience, in every charity or mission agency of the church, the great need 
is for workers or laborers. The word used there is that of a, just a normal day laborer. Nothing fancy, just the kind of person who's prepared to roll up his or her sleeves and get down to work. So if this is the case, if this is the problem, there's a shortage of workers, how can the job vacancies be filled? If this were a human enterprise, solely a human enterprise, I suppose we might embark on a mass recruitment campaign or prepare a new strategy plan. And some churches and Christian organizations have done that with greater or lesser success. Others attempt to persuade people by making them feel either guilty if they don't volunteer or infused and needed if they do. But I believe before all of that, there are other essentials which precede such programs, helpful though they may be. And I just want to look at Matthew 9 and the end of that chapter, verses 35 to 38, and to look at the example and the words of Jesus. I suggest that there are three essentials, three ordered priorities, if we're to recruit the kind of workers needed to reap the harvest, if we ourselves are to qualify for the role. So here's the first. The first is what I want to call vision, what Jesus saw. When he saw the crowds, we read, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word translated saw there has a wider range of meaning than just saw. You see an object or a person. It can refer to all the senses and means to perceive, to know, to examine, and so to see the true state of something. I want to use the word vision to cover these meanings. What is vision? Vision is seeing things as they really are. Now, Jesus is unique in this. He is the perfect son of God, the only one who sees people and things as they really are. Everyone else suffers from poor eyesight. H.G. Wells, the famous writer known for his science fiction like The Time Machine and War of the Worlds, also wrote short stories. I recommend them to you. In one of them, entitled The Country of the Blind, a party of men are traveling in the high Andes in South America. One of them is separated from his companions in a blizzard, and eventually, in a state of exhaustion, near death, he stumbles into a beautiful and fertile valley. He discovers the valley is, is inhabited by a remarkable community of people cut off from the rest of the world who are unique in one particular respect. Every one of them is blind through a genetic defect passed down through the generations. Of course, they've adapted admirably to cope with their lack of sight. They've developed a well-developed, they have a well-developed non-visual cosmology, that is, understanding of the world. They've lost all memory of what sight is. Anyway, to cut a short story short, the traveler falls in love with one of the girls in the community and he wishes to marry her. The leaders, the elders, consult and give their consent on one condition. The young man must submit to a small operation to remove these troublesome things he calls eyes, which cause him to disturb everyone with their nonsensical talk about things he calls the sun and moon and stars and mountains. Faced with such a terrible choice, the young man flees for life back to civilization. You see, popular opinion says, it's a great saying, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. 
the reality is, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is killed. So it is with Jesus. So it was with Jesus. Jesus saw things differently and threatened the status quo, which in the end largely contributed to his death. And here in this passage, Jesus sees the crowds. The disciples, I'm sure, saw the crowds. But Jesus saw them differently. He saw them, he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that human beings, that each one of us, are made to be led. We are made to know God. We've already sung about, the Lord is my shepherd. We need a shepherd. And yet each one of them, each one of us has gone astray. We've gone our own way instead of following the good shepherd. The result is that then we are now harassed, which means weak, enfeebled, faint-hearted. The result is they're helpless, scattered around, with nowhere to go, no one to turn to, pitiful and vulnerable. Jesus saw the crowd, saw people as they really are. Now, one of the sure signs when you become a Christian, a true Christian, when God comes to live within you by his Holy Spirit, your eyesight begins to improve. I don't mean to say to my son-in-law, you need, don't need to go and consult him anymore, but uh, your eyesight begins to improve in all areas. It begins when you see Jesus differently, and from this you begin to see people differently, as they really are. Paul, the author of many of the letters in the New Testament, knew a lot about eyesight and eye problems. He started out as a zealot, Saul of Tarsus, a strict religious Pharisee. He saw, he thought, clearly who Jesus was, a heretic crucified by the Romans until one day en route to the city of Damascus to round up more of his followers. He was stopped in his tracks by a voice from heaven. He was blinded by a bright light, but he saw... Although he was blinded by the light, he saw for the first time who Jesus was, the Son of God. It changed the direction of his life. Recounting the story much later to a, to a Roman official, he said, he commissioned me from then on, the risen Jesus, who he saw who he really was, he said, I'm sending you out to preach my message among all the nations. And he said, your mandate is to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. So, writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth, he says they now have a changed view of Jesus and then of other people. Look at what it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17. He says, from, so from now on, we regard, we see, no one from a worldly point of view, though we once thought of Christ in that way. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If we're to find workers for the Lord's harvest, we need those who have good eyesight, who can see people as they really are. You see, it's very easy to be deceived by appearances. Yes, you might think the guy selling the big issue with a dog on Prince's Street is a bit of a sheep without a shepherd. But so is the lawyer with the briefcase who walks past him. Your self-sufficient, capable neighbor is a sheep without a shepherd. So are the people in the media. So is everyone. But the reverse of the coin is also true. It says, if anyone is in Christ, becomes a Christian, he or she is a new creation. 
And only if you see that and know that will you keep on with the work of sowing, reaping, caring, maintenance in all weathers. Only then can we hope to reap a harvest. So let me just pause for a minute. Think of the person you know who isn't a Christian who you think is the most unlikely person ever to become a Christian. Someone will come to mind immediately. Now, do you believe this? If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Can you visualize what that person might be in Christ? The power of God is such it can reach the most unlikely people. The question is, how good is your eyesight? How do you see? Do you see who Jesus is? Have you ever come to that point that Paul did on that road? It may not be so dramatic, but have you come to the point where you've seen who Jesus is, the true Son of God, the eternal Son of God? Or are you still in the dark? And if God has opened your eyes, how do we see the crowds in the street? Sometimes think about this when I go down Edinburgh or a major city and you see the crowds of people. Do we see them as sheep without a shepherd? That's the first thing, vision, what Jesus saw. Now, notice the second thing that flows from it in our verses. Compassion, what Jesus felt. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. If vision is to do with perception and understanding, then compassion, which flows from it, is to do with feeling and emotion. The word translated compassion there is, a, is an interesting Greek word. Because in Greek thought, you didn't love people with your heart, you loved them with your bowels. I was thinking I could put a picture of some bowels on the screen, but maybe not. Um, I, I guess we have the same thing, you know, it's a gut feeling. In his famous parable stories, compassion is the word Jesus used to describe the story. You remember the story of the, of, if you've read the story the, about the prodigal son who returns home, his father sees him a long way off and he runs to him and he has compassion on him. He flings his arms around him. It's the word used of the Samaritan who sees the man lying by the roadside and doesn't pass by but goes to help him. He feels compassion. It's a word which encapsulates Jesus in all of his ministry. Jesus is moved by sickness and suffering. He's grieved by mourning and death. He is not aloof or impassive. In his gospel account, John, another gospel, the New Testament, Jesus tells us that as he approached the grave of his friend Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. A word used of, of great serious emotion, not only saddened by death, but angered by sin, the root cause from which all the Terrible consequences flow. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, you should note the shortest verse in the Bible is, I learned it as a child because we got prizes for learning verses. John eleven thirty five, profoundly, Jesus wept. The word wept there means, as he came to the grave of his friend, he burst into tears. So the book of Hebrews reminds us of this. It says, we do not have Jesus a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So, do we have the compassion of Christ? Do we see and do we feel? And one of the great dangers is that we become complacent and indifferent as time goes by. Remember the first time I went to India, I ended up, if you've if you have been to India, you'll know what I'm talking about. I ended up on Howrah Railway Station in Calcutta. It's just a teeming mass of humanity. 
And my friend and I, we bought a little tub of ice cream each. And we looked around for a waste paper bin when we finished. There wasn't one. So we did what everybody did. We'd, we just threw the tubs, the empty tubs on the line. And I always remember three little beggar boys leaping on the railway line and fighting over the tubs to lick them out. And I just thought, that is horrendous. I have to say to you, six months later, in walking down the main street in Calcutta, I was able to walk past a live torso begging with barely a second glance. You become indifferent. And indifference to the eternal state of lost people is a far more serious thing. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. If anyone is outside of Christ, he sits under the judgment of Christ, awaiting eternal punishment. Very interesting today that people very rarely talk about hell, and yet Jesus talked about hell far more than he did about heaven. Do we feel for our neighbors, our friends? So do we see, do we feel as God does as Jesus did? If so, a third thing was following. Here's a bit of a surprise to me. I would have thought at this point it would be, do you see the great need? Do you feel about it? Now go and do something about it. But Jesus says something quite different. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Thirdly, notice what Jesus commanded. And I use the word intercession, not just because it rhymes with the others, but it expresses what is meant here. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, in view of this, crowd, sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, in view of this, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. The word ask, I keep talking about all the words, but it's important to know what the words really mean. The word ask is much stronger than the word ask in our translation. The old authorized version translated it, the King James Version translated it, pray the Lord of the harvest. But it's even stronger than that. It's prayer, but of a particular nature. The English Standard Version translates it, earnestly plead with him to send out workers into his harvest field. It's the word used in the Gospels of the leper who wants to be made clean by Jesus. He earnestly pleads, appeals to him. It's the word used of the demoniac who urges Jesus not to torture him. It's the word used of the distraught father of a demon-possessed boy who pleads for the help of Jesus. In the Old Testament, if you know the Bible, <clears throat> it's what happened to Abraham as he pleads for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, interceding before God for them and asking God to stay his hand of judgment. It is the word intercession. You see, the world's idea of prayer is, it's the last hope when all human resources have failed. But in God's economy, the first thing we must do before any human resources have been used is to pray. Now, just pause for a moment. There's a great mystery here if you think about it. If it's the Lord's harvest field, and if he wants the harvest to be reaped, why should we need to beg him to send out workers to do it? Why pray for workers? Well, I don't have a neat answer, but let me give you a few clues. First of all, we pray for workers because we're commanded to do so. If he's the Lord, we obey his instructions. We also pray for workers because this is our privilege in part. You see, you want to be involved in what God is doing in the world? The way God involves us most of all is by prayer, first of all. He is the father who delights to hear the request of his children, even tells us what to ask and what pleases him. 
And when we come to pray, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, there are desperate situations. You sometimes don't know what to pray for. What is God's will in this situation? We've got a friend who's desperately ill at the moment. We're praying for him earnestly that God will heal him. But I don't have any assurance either way. I know God's will will be done. I rest in that. But here is something which is absolutely, you can be sure, is God's will. If you pray for workers, God will answer. And most important of all, prayer reminds us that nothing happens unless God does it. It reinforces our dependence on God, not on ourselves. So when we plead for the Lord to send out workers, the result is they are sent out by the Lord. We are not told, notice, to pray for workers. We are told to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into the harvest field. You see, when God sends them out, they're not motivated by enthusiasm or guilt feelings or persuaded by eloquence. They're driven by God. Again, the word send here is the same word we saw way back in the Gospels when Jesus, after he'd been baptized, he was sent out by the Spirit to be tested by Satan. It's a Greek word. It means literally throw, thrust somebody out. You see, the workers need to know they're sent by God or they'll down tools at the first sign of difficulty. And whatever God has called you to do, unless you know he's sent you to do it, whatever it is, you need to know that if you're going to persist with it. Nietzsche and I have spent, spent many years abroad as missionaries, and we were in pretty, some pretty hairy situations over the years. Believe me, if we didn't have any conviction that God had put us there, we'd have been home on the next plane. God has called us. If we're sent by God, that is the vital thing. So here's the third and final question. Do we see? Do we feel? And thirdly, do we pray? Well, I'd like to know what happened between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. I speculate that there was a prayer meeting after the Lord told them to pray. Only one topic, Lord, send out workers into the harvest field. Was the prayer answered? Notice what happened next, all right? He called, chapter 10, straight on, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, notice the words, these 12, Jesus sent out. Believe me, they were not a very promising group of people. But Jesus called them, and Jesus sent them. Let me conclude with something. You may have heard this before, but it's worth repeating in this context. An imaginary report sent by a management consultancy committee, company. This is what it says. Thank you for submitting the CVs of the 12 men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our tests. We've also arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of the nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the kind of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, given to fits of temper. 
Andrew has absolutely no, no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot definitely have radical leanings and both registered high on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. The rest, as they say, is history. A history that God continues to repeat, choosing and using the most unlikely people, like me, like you. Who knows what a harvest might be reaped if we took the command of Jesus seriously. Who knows what impact such prayer might have on us. The harvest is still plentiful. The workers are still few. So ask, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's pray briefly and then Alan is going to lead us in a final song, which you'll see I think is appropriate to what we've, th we've talked about. Let's pray together. Gracious God, give us eyes to see as you see, to see the crowds of people and the individuals we know as you see them, sheep without a shepherd. Lord, forgive us that we become indifferent to their state and their eternal destiny. Help us to feel as you feel. And in view of all this, Lord, we pray, we plead, we ask that you, the Lord of the harvest, might send out workers into your harvest field so that many more people might come to know Christ, whom to know is life eternal. And we pray in Jesus' name.